Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. Your on-the-go bite of the food and beverage industry. Welcome, folks, to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. My name's Grant McCarran, and today I'm once again joined by Kim Berry, the editor of Food and Drink Business and the host of this show. G'day, Kim. How's it going today? Hi, Grant. I'm very well indeed. We're also still not talking about COVID. Is that right? We're not talking about it? Uh, well, you just did, but, uh, you know, I <laughs> not mentioning don't it. mention the L word. No. Don't mention the L word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, we are, uh, yes, exactly. Twitch, neck itch, you name it. So what we're going to do today, we're going to have a really interesting and exciting discussion around a product that is called Dewa. It's a coffee and Dewa is actually spelt D-H-U-W-A. And it is the first Indigenous owned, managed and controlled coffee enterprise in Australia. It uh, came across the desk of uh, food and drink business a few months back, and we really wanted to find out more. So joining us today is the founder of Dewa, Sean Andrews, and the managing director of Griffith Brothers Coffee Roasters, Peter Patistius, who has been working with Sean to bring the coffee project to life. So, Sean is a descendant of the Mananjali people of southeast Queensland and the Palawa people of Tasmania. He's managing director of the Indigenous-owned and operated businesses Indigicate, uh, which is an educational camp program that is working to change the often negative narrative we hear when it comes to Indigenous culture and history. And a company called Supply Oz, which is a social enterprise procurement company, finding solutions for businesses uh, across the board. But I guess, and not more importantly, but even more so than, than the businesses he's managing is the work that he is renowned for when it comes to uh, ending dis- Indigenous disadvantage and transgenerational trauma, and as well as building reconciliation. And alongside, hi, Sean. Hi, Kim. (laughs) Sorry, I'll draw a breath. (laughs) (laughs) And joining us as well is Peter. Uh, Griffiths Brothers has been around for an awfully long time. It started roasting in 1879. And over those 140 years, it's now become a multi-channel coffee roastery. And uh, it's a really interesting partnership that has brought us to this conversation today. Hi, Pete. Thanks for having me on, Kim. Okay, let's uh, let's start at the beginning. Sean, talk to me about the kernel of where Dewa started. It was really sort of simple in some ways and complex in others, Kim. I suppose. So, firstly, being in Melbourne, we we don't bleed blood in Melbourne. We actually bleed coffee. I think that's what <laughs> comes out when uh, when we give give blood, we give coffee. So it's sort of a big part of our culture and what we do down here. And I really love coffee, all types of coffee. Um, I'm a coffee snob in a different way that I'm quite happy to try all ranges from instant right through to your most sophisticated blends uh, and roasted. I just and, I just saw Pete wince at that. <laughs> <laughs> Very accurate. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it, you've got to be involved. You've got to, to understand you've got to be involved. And I think coffee – and the conversations that happen around coffee and tea and stuff in our communities is really important. And we have a lot of conversations around reconciliation and conversations around healing and truth-telling in, in that setting. And you think about it, 
you go out and have a coffee with your friends because you want to catch up with them and you want to get the goss and you want to learn. And there's just such beauty around, for me, the community aspects of having a coffee as well as the taste and all that other stuff that coffee can give you. And originally my thought was, well, I love coffee. Coffee's a really uh, interesting market and, and everybody, almost everybody buys coffee in this country. And I thought, why wouldn't we want to get into the space of creating an Indigenous brand that not only promotes Indigenous people, Indigenous culture in a positive narrative, but also encourages people to have a reconciliation and a cup type conversation. And that was really important to me to get get that through. And I think initially, um, and I'll talk pre-Pete uh, and Chris <laughs> and Griffith Bros, we, we played around with some ideas and roasted some of our own beans and um, decided that we would We'd, we'd get into coffee and we we didn't really know how we are going to get the infrastructure going because, unfortunately, I don't know too many Indigenous people who could lend me enough money to set up the right sort of facility to roast the beans at a scale that we needed. And I also couldn't find the right partners early on. So we got introduced to, to Pete and Chris, I think, November uh, 2019, 2020, sorry, wow, how quick a year goes. Uh, yeah. But, um, 2020. <laughs> I keep living in 2019 because you all remember that was the that last. Was? Yeah, yeah, I know, right? So it was a simpler time. It was a simpler time. <laughs> we were so naive. <laughs> <laughs> and when I, when I, um, I was told all about, you know, oh, no, this is a serious facility out here and these are serious coffee guys and I did a bit of research. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's, it's pretty cute, the thing they got going out there. They're old. They've been around for 140 years and, you know, all the things you see publicly. And then I walked in to, to have the meeting and, I suppose there's a few things that, that you've got to be wary of as an Indigenous business person. It's, there's a landscape at the moment where people can really uh, misuse your trust and and really leverage your Indigenous ancestry to make quick pro- quick buck and quick profit. So you're a bit wary of that. And when I walked in, um, firstly, they passed the, the beer test. And it's not the would you have a beer with them at the pub, it's would your mum buy them a beer? Oh, right. oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, you know, <laughs> my mum is not buying anyone a beer. She's only buying beer people that she actually wants to sit down and talk with. And the second thing that was really impressive was, uh, and this really in Pete's nature, which I really enjoy, he had sat down and done a ton of work on working out who I am. And all this information was in front of him. He'd gone through not just the businesses I was involved in, but also things I'd spoken on and what I was passionate about. And he, he completed his research. And that to me showed real genuine interest in a, a proper business partnership because you don't go into business just because you, you don't tend to go into business just because you like someone or you met them down the street and you're like, hey, yeah, you're nice, let's go into business. Yeah, you legitimately have to know more about them. And I, I think we'd probably in that stage for our various businesses gone through 10 or so meetings and different things and, you know, all 10 of them are failures because those people don't really want to do business with you. It's all all that forward-facing nonsense. So they it's pass almost the actually like and, It's almost like he – it's almost like, I mean, you know, it's, it's weird. Pete is sort of here. He's nodding and, and you know, <laughs> feeling, feeling a bit smug as we're all saying lovely things. Um, it's almost like, you know, he actually showed respect, like in terms of he respected the process – by doing his research as much as, you know, you coming in and, and say, pitching. It, it was a mutual um, meeting, meeting of the ways. Well, you have, to, you have to come with that approach of working with anyone 
But from an Indigenous point of view and with trauma-informed practice and all those things that I know behind me is that you want people, it's not just about the respect when they come to meet you, it's about their willingness to want to work and understand you, even though they may know nothing about your culture, your trauma background, or any of that sort of stuff that occurs, that they actually really want to work with you in a way that says, hey, hey, hold on, you're a legitimate business person, we're legitimate business people, let's work together on business, but I need to know you first to do that and then let's come from that level playing field of, and that then that sort of takes away, you know, who has more in the equation to give to the business? It comes down to can you work together? Do you have that mutual respect? Am I going to be able to walk in this place and feel culturally safe? Well, if the managing directors of the place are taking their time to really invest in knowing whether they want me to walk into this place and not also upset their culture, that is really important to me. So rather than the other nonsense that we tend to get, which is, oh, hey, can we put your face in the front of something? Can you, you know, can we make this the most black cladded thing in the entire world, which we get a lot of and it's really yeah. disappointing. Can you just talk a bit more about uh, the trauma coming from that background? Because I don't think that's something people think of outside of, say, a, a domestic situation or a, or a person like a, I don't think we're thinking about that in a, a business relationship mindset. So can you talk to us about that in that space? You have to understand that we've got 220-odd years of colonisation that sits on the shoulders of every single Indigenous and non-Indigenous person in this country. Now, when Indigenous peoples walk into any space, they're carrying that trauma with them through whether it's intergenerational trauma or it's lived experience, whether it's racism direct or, or indirect racism, whether it's your grandmother's part of the stolen generations or not, or the fact that every two weeks around January 26th you have to lock yourself in your house and away from people because every bit of news item and everything that exists out there is in your face about are Indigenous people good, bad or in between. So whether you are the bravest Indigenous person in the world uh, or not, you have to be aware of that trauma when you come into a space and non-Indigenous people have to sort of understand that we're bringing this with us so, and, you know, Pete's had to live firsthand um, at times and I'll sit around and I'll go, I'm not doing that. I can't come and do that. Or a great one in the office is I might roll in for 30 minutes and roll back out because I just feel safer working at home today. And it's got nothing to do with anyone around me. It's to do with that trauma or that, you know, there was another death in custody today and my cousin was, was shot by the police a couple of years ago So and killed. So, yeah. It's understanding that, that that's there and not judging the individual for their actions but judging actions. So as long as your actions, the person's not bad, as long as their actions can be judging, you sit there and go, hey, that's a trauma response, then you can work with. And I think that's been part of this education process too is that Griffith Bros had to understand early on and they, and they knew this, we had all these conversations that, hey, we're going to be employing and bringing Indigenous people in. I'm the 3% of the 3%. And I'm carrying a lot of trauma. I'm carrying a lot of issues. And you're going to need to understand that. We're going to need to education here. And um, and that and it's been really, really positive with it. So that's often the forgotten part of the business that occurs. And a lot of the times when business relationships fall down or employment situations fall down in Indigenous space, it's because people don't understand trauma and trauma-informed practice. And it's a really critical part of our pedagogy moving forward, I think. I know when we've spoken about this before and we've talked about the, just what's 
uh, well, I mean, it really is biases and racism that is, that that are coming, you know, into a, a relationship, and I, I just think that that notion of of that intergenerational trauma impact is not something that I've, you know, is has really been acknowledged at all. It's it's often not, and that's why I'm really my, my major passion in the world is to end Indigenous disadvantage and end that that trauma cycle, and we do a lot of work for that. And the coffee is a tool in some ways to help us to do that. But part of the relationship building, you go about that first meeting with Pete and Chris, and we already had Dewar as a concept, all right, and some artwork and some things. And that It really helped that they were the oldest coffee roasters in the country because the oldest culture and the oldest coffee roasters. But one thing that really, having worked with and for a lot of Greek people in my life, um, I understood really walking into this meeting is like, you know, pretty Greek names, Greek Greek family, I reckon, I reckon they've had some racism and some stories in their lives. And I would, without even knowing Pete's family um, or Chris's family, I guarantee there's some intergenerational trauma there too that the colonisation of this country plays on top of them as well. So, you know, I also had a little bit of comfort in that knowing that I can have those honest conversations with Pete and Chris and and all the staff here at Griffith Bros, who are really amazing. And, and can safely bring Indigenous young people in here knowing that they will judge the action, not the person, which is really important in this space if we're going to have, firstly, the emancipation of Indigenous people, but the growth of Indigenous business as well. Um, Pete, talk to us about what the experience was like, particularly in those early, you know, in those sort of early introductory meetings and the, and the early stages of the process. What's your perspective from that, from that time? It, it was a, um, a continually changing feel from from my perspective. It was difficult to um, to firstly be confronted with how much trauma exists within the Indigenous community and then realise every day for Sean and the crew is a changing playing field. So, you know, I, I can pretty much map out my week. I know pretty much what's going to come and go from um, my plate, whereas from Sean and Adam's point of view, particularly Sean, who works from our offices here, um, having an understanding of how much change um, from day to day, let alone hour to hour, was pretty confronting and realising that these weren't topics that were just involving business. In actual fact, they were involving people's welfare. So it was a significant learning for our perspective as an organisation to realise, gee, this is this is more than just building products and then, you know, distributing it through. This is actually about us learning as an organisation that there is larger consequences to what we do and we can be part of a little bit of change because it, as much as, you know, we do bleed coffee, we, we are just making coffee and we're not doing life-changing <laughs> events. So, you know, I need to keep that realistic. But if, we, if we're part of that conversation, um, I'm really thankful for it, to be honest. There's times when I've gone home and, um, I mean, I traditionally do this anyway. I sit in my car and I think about the day and what, what I could have done and what I should have done better. And, and those those times got longer and longer in my car as we did more and more DIY work because I, I realised that, in actual fact, the, the, the business side of it is probably the simplest. Um, the relationship and the exposure to the Indigenous culture was probably the hardest and realising how complex it really is. And I mean, you know, from an outsider's point of view, I then look at that and then just go, yes, but look at how meaningful it is. 
Uh, it, it's been enormously <laughs> rewarding. Like, like it's, uh, it, it's actually, um, funnily enough, uh, I'll go home and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about a conversation that Sean and I have had, or I'll talk about an example that he provided me, and I'll talk it with my my family, and they will say something that I felt is really woke. But to me, it was really confronting. And it's like, well, yeah, because of this. And it's like, gee, I'm so far behind the ball game that I really need to catch up. And, you know, I can blame a whole heap of stuff around that. But the reality is we need to be open to change and we need to be open to these experiences and validate them. So it's been, I think it's been a really rewarding for us, for me personally anyway. So let's come back. We've had the, we've had the first meetings. You've decided that you're going to work together. What happens then? Like, what, where are the beans coming from? Who's roasting them? How's the packaging happening? What, and then another really big discussion I want to have is around your supply chain and your distribution. There was an enormous amount of work and um, <laughs> Sean, <clears throat> Sean has a particular skill base of giving us the really big picture and then going, oh, here it is. Like it's a real skill. Um, and then just a little hand flap of like details, details, details. <laughs> I call it knife drops, Kim, but you know, whatever, whatever term you want to use. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> lots and lots of humour in between that. But, um, you know, I, I actually, I really enjoy the bigger picture component. So it gives us a driving point to say, well, you know, how can we generate funds? How can we pass that across? Um, and then working towards those. So from, from our perspective, creating the coffees, um, I already knew what I, I kind of envisioned in my head, what the nuances should be on the shelf and, and how they should be parceled out. Uh, we have relationships with Coles and Woolies already. And I know that demographic wealth, the difficulty is then saying, how do you provide a modern Indigenous business to the layperson, to the average punter that goes in at a Coles and Woolworths and says, you know, I'm going to give, I'm going to, I'm going to give this a go. I'm going, to, I'm going to spend my $10 and and actively try that coffee because people are quite loyal to brand. Yeah, um, particularly, particularly with coffee. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, I, I felt the artwork was uh, such a great banner for the Diwa coffee. I just felt it really represented who, what the product was about and where it was going to go and it wasn't, I just felt it had a really great reflection of the, the merit of what we were trying to do. So that, that became um, critical to the presentation on pack. Uh, and then after that, it was about sourcing coffees as close as we can to um, Australia. So P&G is, is, you know, one of our greatest neighbours as far as their coffee quality and the provisions. And we've been working for them for decades, um, for a long, long time. And then we kind of crept out from there just to, just to reduce that, um, that footprint and carbon and uh, move towards more of a sustainable point. So then you obviously have to sell it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I suppose that, that, well, that's where I come in, uh, the selling. And I think when we first met with um, Peter and Chris Tagais here, Chris is Pete's uh, business partner here at Griffith Bros and he's the other director of um, DIY Coffee with me. And um, also to mention that Adam Williams, the CEO of Supply Oz, uh, within the distribution agreements that Supply Oz has was involved and has been involved heavily in that sort of co-founding part of this as well. Um, w- when we sort of sat down, it was a really good marriage because they have the facility here and to, to make not only great coffee but to do it at scale. And we had these amazing contracts and, and I suppose relationships with Woolworths already at a very high level because last year um, – we actually got Woolworths out of a bit of a pickle. They needed hand sanitizer to keep their stores open and we landed 120 tonnes of it in a plane. 
as a small indigenous business with like a thousand dollars to our name, we convinced Woolworths to give us millions, and and um, we developed a great relationship with them there, and worked back and forth on a few things. And I sort of joked to the, the guys that uh, I think there was this, these two jokes that were going on. The first one was from Pete and Chris was, yeah, yeah, we can scale up, don't worry, we've got the facility, we're ready to go. And I would sort of make this joke of like, well, when we have our first Woolworths meeting, I just want you to be ready because we're, we're going to take off. This is like I've given them the big picture and um, and I live in the clouds most days. So, you know, that's just, just where I'm at. It's why we employ details people, I suppose. So, um, and I said, it's going to be okay. And, and he sort of, we went through the whole process. We understood what we were going to do. We're six weeks into it, probably four weeks into it. And we have our Woolworths meeting, which we've pushed, by the way, forward as quick as we can um, because um, the supply Oz just distribution agreement, they were pushing us to go, get in front of Woolworths. And we're like, okay. And we meet with them. And Chris, I remember this really clearly because uh, Pete, pretty relaxed about the Woolworths meeting. Chris, um, not so relaxed because he deals with the, the buyer now. And he's like, well, if we get one skew, one product in, it'd be really good. And 60 seconds in, it's like the buyer says, no, no, we're going to give you eight SKUs in 100 stores. And I'm just sort of sitting here, guys, with my hands up near going, yeah, like, you know, that, that, <laughs> Mark like, drop. <laughs> yeah, like that. I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. That song going in the back of my head like I told you we were going to get it. And then we left the meeting and the, 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 the sheer shock on Chris's face made me realise like, oh, shit, what have I done? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, because it wasn't just eight SKUs and 100 stores, which I thought would be in October, yeah? They said, no, no, you've got 14 weeks to get it ready. Now, the coffee bit is easy. The coffee bit is easy. I've been there, did the tour, started to get really involved in all the process of the coffee. I understood when Pete said, no, no, we can do the coffee at scale. He's right. And we can do great coffee. Then we had to order bags <laughs> and do that and get the artwork through all the, the GS ones and the marketing and everything that goes in that process. And I went from someone who does services and sells some products to this guy who's all of a sudden in charge of ticking off everything from marketing through to going through Woolworth system. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, and, and this great PR teams that we have and everyone's pitching to me and I'm like, wow, and then I've got everyone going, we're now 10 weeks away, we're eight weeks away, we're six weeks away. <laughs> and, and, you know, Pete's thinking in the car, this is, this is the difference between Pete and I. Pete will reflect on his day. I get in the car, the music goes up, I'm banging 90s tunes. I've completely forgotten about what's going on at work. <laughs> I'm on my way home. It's only a K and a half to my house. Let's let's get on with it. But, you know, we did. We met the deadlines. We took an Indigenous product into grocery to be the only Indigenous product uh, in, at any scale in grocery. That's just phenomenal. That's phenomenal. And, uh, and uh, has Chris – Pete seems to have recovered. Has Chris recovered? Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> it's, there's a little bit of stress. Um <laughs> I have to say, though, we're really thankful to the general public who have done an amazing job of supporting the product. Um, you know, it, it's really tough to get people to change from one from one brand to another in the best of cases, but um, 
the, the Dewar coffee was really taken up by people going in there and giving it a go and then realising it is fantastic coffee and I'm, I'm glad to be part of a process of change. Even if it is a small step, it's a step in the absolutely right direction and we're really thankful to those people because you don't get increase in store distribution unless you are literally selling product regardless of what the, uh, the merits of the cause is. So we're really quite thankful. I think the thing that shines through this so much is how much it has been driven, obviously, by talent and experience, but also really constructive relationships. Sean, I'm guessing that when you are in a business and you're and you're building those channels and 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 those relationships, when it works, it works, but when it doesn't, it's probably can be fairly devastating. What are some areas where that seems to happen more than others? Yeah, it can be really devastating. I think the the problem we've got in this landscape of Indigenous business is that Indigenous businesses are emerging and what's ultimately happened is the government and, and big corporate businesses tried to get behind Indigenous people and businesses by introducing a thing called the IPP, the Indigenous Procurement Policy, which essentially means that anywhere between 1% and 5% of that spend has to be on an Indigenous-owned business. Now, the problem that's occurred in this space in business, Indigenous business space, is that there are many people out there who are dishonest in their dealings in business and they want to just make a quick buck. Um, yeah, from an Indigenous point of view, I don't really tend to get too angry with the Indigenous person who's finally trying to make some money in their life and, and get ahead because, you know, they're often coming from a position where they don't have a lot and, and I understand that firsthand. You know, I've, I've been homeless, I've, um, I've lived out of my car, I started my first business with twenty dollars to my name. I understand how critical it can be to to earn some money and get some financial security and safety. But the other side of that is the non-indigenous businesses, particularly really really big ones, who decide to do this thing that we call black cladding, which is when they set up an indigenous business and they put an indigenous face at it, and essentially all they've done is uh, give a, a little bit of um, pay to an indigenous person to be the front of this new entity. And that person has no expertise, isn't across the decision-making and doesn't really do anything in business. And those guys then go out and they win big, massive government contracts. It happens a lot and there's no real legislation in place to stop that. And when that goes wrong, as we saw last year during the, the pandemic, these joint ventures fall apart really quickly because if they're not built on legitimate business interests, real partnerships, then, you know, what well, they say, um, smooth sailing makes for poor captains. So in that in that sort of idea that when the water gets rough, well, if you don't know how to man the boat or or drive the boat, then then you're in trouble. And we see that fall apart and we see people get exploited. Now, I've witnessed that happen to a number of businesses. I probably, up until a couple of months ago, I was probably getting a business, new business venture offer twice or three times a week. Um which is quite extraordinary. And some of them, Kim, would just be, hey, here's a product. Would you like X amount of dollars or percentage of this product to be the face of it or, or join business with us? And, you know, you get a bit frustrated and, and you move on. But I suppose the other side of it is it really makes you appreciate relationships like the one I have with Dewar Coffee because it's, it's a business built on, on business. And as Pete said before, it doesn't matter how good our story is or, or what our social outcomes are or anything like that. Like at the end of the day, it's a brown bean and the brown bean has to be good and it has to make 
outstanding coffee, otherwise people won't buy it. And if they don't buy it, it won't get further ranging and, and the company dies. Now, you've got to balance that as an Indigenous business, that want for people to spend on Indigenous and promote and help us in what we're doing. And also you've got to have a really good product. And I think sometimes the trap is that Indigenous people can fall into the, well, we'll just take your product and work with it and we'll black cloud it or we'll support it even though it's not going to make it just because we want to feel good about ourselves. And that didn't happen at Dewa. Pete and Chris, in all fairness to them, uh, their feelings in this setting don't really matter to me how they feel about the Indigenous side of things and how they feel about, um, you know, is is this is this uh, coffee helping Indigenous people or not? Their actions are what really matters and their actions have been really outstanding in that space of going, no, no, this is a legitimate real business. They place me in charge of the decision-making on everything that I could be a decision-maker on and everything got ran past me, Kim, in the whole entire process, even things I didn't understand to begin with like, how long the coffee has to cool down and comes out of the machines and does this and does that. And, you know, you learn it as you go forward, but they're really involved. And that that idea of sort of saying that their feelings don't matter, it's not important. They're my, it is important rather they're my friends and I care, but the business relationship will outgrow me and Pete and Chris um, into whoever else wanted to take it over and manage it later on to work with us and that, is what we need more of an Indigenous business. And that's where it falls down because you could imagine, and I can only say you can imagine, Kim, because I make the assumption you're not an Indigenous person. But fair, That's a fair assumption. <laughs> you're, you're an Indigenous person, you've got some degrees, you've got a successful business, you can talk underwater, you become in high demand really quickly and people want you to, to especially around the busy weeks of the year, people want you to, be doing talks and stuff like that. And if you don't have any real figure to your business relationships and any real substance to the partnerships, they will fall apart during those times. And you've got to have business partners that, that outgrow that. And that to me is one of the biggest areas of concern because if you're just in this to make money and you've got to make money because you can't have a business without doing it, but if you're just in it to do that using an IPP spend, you're going to fail. And we're seeing it time and time again. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but then how do we how do we make this, how do we make what's happened with Dewa, how do we make this become the norm? It's a loaded question in so many ways because how do you remove systemic racism from the Australian society? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, sorry. Right. Yes. I thought sorry, I thought I I thought I clouded that in enough sort of buzzwords that you wouldn't actually realise that was the <laughs> that was the question I was really alluding to. <laughs> oh no, that, that that's actually truly colonisation in its effect, Kim. You're just trying to bamboozle me with some flags and some oh ownership God. over here. And, oh and my God! <laughs> no, I, I joke. Let the, let the shame spiral commence. That's right. So, um, so here's a here's a, a couple of things. All right. So we're all destined to become ancestors, yeah. In in a cultural point of view, and I like to think of. How we actually do more to support Indigenous people starts with understanding that we've got to get more involved in Indigenous culture, which is one, and we've got to respect it and care for it and understand it and love it and understand the biases we have. But for me, Kim, it's, it's a lot more simpler. And, you know, if the listeners now can imagine 
that they're sitting in front of the biggest waterfall they've ever seen in their entire life. Like they've, this waterfall is huge. It's you can feel the, the water coming off it. You can hear it. It's fumbling down. It's incredible. And you you transport yourself up that waterfall and you see the massive river in front of you and you're flying over at all the bends and the way the river curves around the rocks and it sort of makes a land mould around it to, to go where it needs to go and you, you keep making your way up further into bush and the river gets smaller and smaller and smaller until you get to the very beginning of the river which starts with one single drop. And really all I need people to do is just be that drop in the change. I need them just to be the drop. And that means buying Indigenous products. It means actually checking to see whether they are Indigenous products. It means sitting down and getting involved in Indigenous cultural events, understanding why we're process, uh, protesting, understanding what the impact of colonisation is. Because once they do that, they become that single drop of water in their families, in their communities, which then becomes the most biggest beautiful waterfall we've ever, we've ever saw in our lives. And that to me is what we need to sort of see ourselves as. And once you get that momentum, you, you think about a river. The river curves and makes its own path to where it needs to go. And I really fully believe that Australians can do that to bring back true reconciliation in this country by actually doing that. And, and, you could probably do it while enjoying a DIY cup of coffee if you want. <laughs> Get a plug in there. But the reality Absolutely. is that there are lots of really strong Indigenous businesses. There are lots of really strong and beautiful Indigenous people. Our culture is rich and strong and incredible and we actually want people to get involved in it. Um, and that's to me is it seems so scary for the Ballanders or the white fellows or whatever term Aboriginal people want to use in that sense. But it's not it's not scary anymore. It's about that working together and being together on that reconciliation journey and understanding that there's a lot of trauma involved and there's a lot of truth still to be told. And that's an important part of the healing process to get to where you need to go to. But just be the single drop. That's all I need you to be. In your family, in your community, in your cafe, which will obviously be a Diwa coffee supplying cafe. When you're when you're um, you know in Woolworths looking in the coffee aisle and you go, well, I could buy this one that's not even Australian owned, or I could go for the Indigenous one, and that's a single drop because all of a sudden you're putting our product in your home or someone else who's Indigenous. I'm all for supporting all Indigenous businesses in your home and your family would say, oh, where's this come from? What's this about? And that starts that that conversation, and then we'll be, as I said at the start, we're all destined to be ancestors. What sort of ancestor do you want to be? Well said, Sean. It's just, yeah, this is why we had to talk today. What were you going to say, Pete? Uh, one of the things uh, I've really enjoyed about this process and um, and having a look at the Indigenous culture from from a different aspect was um, we, we came up with a uh, almost a marketing term that said rise and yulnun, and that's an Indigenous word for shine. And it and it struck me when we talked about it that I knew no Indigenous language, none. So I can say hi and bye in a number of languages and I can do that across and my friends say ciao at the end of a conversation and it's like, why, why are we speaking Italian? Like it's um, it's incredible that our, our, our native language is actually unheard and it's unheard amongst our community. So it, it just it's a reflection when when 
Sean talks about that single drop. That that drop can come in the purchase. It can come in expression. It can come in a lot of ways. It doesn't need to be through just acquisition. It can just be with a little bit of change. And it, and it's it's a wonderful thing when you look at language because if language dies, that culture dies with it. So it's really important for us to to sponsor that change as well and be part of it and and have some learning along the way. It's wonderful. The first time I spoke my language was in front of fifteen hundred Aboriginal people in Canada and Vancouver from various nations. And I'll share this with with you guys and because nobody no one's listening, are they? They're not gonna know. No. So no, they're not gonna know. It's just I, it's um, just it's just us. It's just, just us. us. It's just us. Yeah. yeah. But because I don't want them to know two things that about me, Kim, and it's that when I get on stage, I don't tend to write speeches. I just take a blank piece of paper because it makes everyone else feel comfortable that I've got some notes to read from. <laughs> um, so and I was gonna do this for this closing address, all right? And then Aved McCarty, the um, former national chief of Kanda, uh, like an ant from uh, Lord of the Rings, that's how he speaks. He takes forever to have a conversation. <laughs> and um, he tells me in the, the morning before my speech, because I had this meeting with him, very privileged, he goes, oh, we've got this thing called the um, Indian Act here, Sean, um, but you, you got the same thing in, in Australia, but you, it's not Indian Act, it's Act Indian. I need you to act more Indian. But in relation to being Aboriginal here, you need to be more Aboriginal. You just need to trust this process. And so I sat down and started writing a 15-minute speech, which is incredible. My my wife was like blown away by the commitment (laughs) that I I showed that morning, headphones on, and away I went. But I kept rewriting for the first like two hours, two hours and 20 minutes of writing, my, my introduction, my language, just to say hello, brothers and sisters, my name's Sean Andrews. I'm an echidna. I'm a Mananjali man. I'm proud to be here and I'm here to tell you all that your connection matters and it needs to drive the next change in this world. The moment that I spoke those words out loud on the stage in front of all of those people was the most liberating experience in my entire life. And it it, it just felt, I felt the weight of all these people behind me and it, and it drove me to give a speech where I ended up getting a standing ovation, which was quite incredible and humbling. And it taught me something really valuable about language in particular and what we need to do in this country and, and, and particularly from Indigenous point of view to be braver in our approach to sharing and doing that. Um, and Griffith Bros and Dewar and working in here, we've really tried to embrace that approach of being brave as much as possible and it wouldn't happen without the support of the white fellas, essentially, because you need everyone from the person packing your bags to, that to, to understand that process. And that's language is so powerful. We need more of it. And look, I think there, there is another there is another element to this, and I'm very conscious of of the time and that you know we people and podcast links, and I can see Grant sort of sitting there getting almost twitchy. But uh, I think. Um, and maybe this is just me, I don't know, but that that desperation and, and really strong desire to learn and understand um, our Indigenous culture, but then to not be seen to, well, to be almost black cladding it, like to not be seen to just be taking it on superficially or, or that just because it is being woke, you know, like, but actually genuinely, I want to know what, you know, with, with the Dreamtime stories from around the area where I live. And I want to know what the language, what I can start, what words I could start using. And 
Um, but it's there's a I, I think there is a bit of a fear. There's almost a trepidation of oh I don't want to be insensitive or do it incorrectly. I'd just say park that fear, Kim. We've got to outgrow it. That's the reality of where we are. And I think if if we had had this conversation five years ago, people would have laughed at the idea of putting an Indigenous branded coffee into anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know, if you think about it, we had to have, uh, and this is brutally honest, but we had to have a guy get um, suffocated by the police, a black guy in America, in order to drive that on a wheel of change that was required to lead us into where we are now. And for us to grow through this, because our kids are pushing us in this direction, we've just got to be brave. You've got to mess words up. Like what's the difference in travelling to Greece and going down in Athens and and trying to say some Greek words and getting laughed at and told, <laughs> hey, you, you silly, you need to do that better. There's no difference here. It, yeah. And the only thing I'd say to anyone who's listening is just recognise that sometimes people are getting upset because of their trauma and and it's not you. It's And you've got to be brave enough to go, that's a trauma response. And so you've got to work through it and we've got to work out how we can celebrate the world's oldest living culture properly in this country and we're getting there. And this coffee is one small step as far as uh, grocery product but it's also supporting the Dreaming Futures charity and the work we do with kids in care. It's allowing more Indigenous people to sit there and go, maybe I can take my product to grocery. It's showing our culture in, you know, so many supermarkets, people will actually now be able to take our culture for granted a little bit because they'll be able to walk past it and see it. Hopefully they buy one, but at the very least they're going to see it there. It's going to become normal. And all of a sudden in a year's time, everyone's going to be like, oh, yeah, Dewa's been around forever. And that changes the narrative. <laughs> so, you know, just be brave. You're going to get it wrong. And at the very end of the day, do some research, ask a question, run it past your friend. Anytime I have to present to an entire group of women, Kim, I make sure that I speak to women about what I'm going to talk about because if there's a pressing issue that I need to be made aware of as a man, then I do that. And if I get caught out saying something that could be sexist or misogynistic, I make sure that I listen to why that is and I make sure I never, ever do it again. And that's, that's you know, why you see Indigenous shirts saying um, getting a treaty or or land rights or saying sorry means never doing it again. That's that's the trick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh guys. It's uh, it's just fantastic. And you guys, I'm just I commend you for the project. I congratulate you for how well it's going. I uh, I just thank you for coming on today and sharing the story of Dewa and also your insights and experience and, and advice and guidance. It's just been remarkable. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Kim, Graham. Great, greatly appreciate the opportunity. It's a, it's a journey and we're having some fun along the way as well. That's right. It's always a journey. <laughs> <laughs> it's, our, it's our pleasure. And I think um, you can celebrate after this by enjoying a really lovely Dewa cup of coffee and uh, I would like working. I would like you to know that my 15-year-old today taught me how to use our Breville espresso machine, hashtag not sponsored, and I learned how to use the machine and I made my latte with Dewa beans and it was wow. delicious. Yes. Dewa is now lattes? the coffee beans. Now is the car, now it is the um the bean of choice in this household. 
Fantastic. Mm. True story. Kim, so I, I urge wonder, everyone. I do wonder what my grandmother would think if I said, hey, hey, yeah, Nan, Nan listen, there's these white fellas in Sydney making our coffee that we've got yeah. in their household yeah. and drinking. And, like, and you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't live in a particularly multicultural part of Sydney <laughs> in any way, shape or form. So, yes, it literally is a house and there's four, there's four sons in this house. So, yes, there's a lot of white fellas in this house and they all drink coffee and they're all drinking Indigenous-owned coffee brand. And you see, I love the wall reconciliation in the cup, isn't it? I love the wall. <laughs> yeah, it's just such a great story. Thank you so much. Well, thanks, gents. Thanks, Kim. That's been a great discussion. And uh, with that, we're going to wrap up here. So uh, thanks also to everyone who's been listening. We'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode. But until then, have a great day. You've been listening to the Food and Drink Business Podcast, produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Food and Drink Business, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of Food and Drink Business, Yaffa Media, or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast's audio, please contact us via our website or send an email to editor at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's food and beverage industry at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast.